Hello and welcome to StratHack, a new podcast series that aims to dig deep into the art of strategy and decision making, hosted by me, Sarah Holland, and me, Amelia Tarode. We're the two founders of the Thornbreak Collective, an award-winning brand consultancy based in London, but working all over the world. In each episode, we lift the lid on a company or individual who inspires us, talking with them about the decisions they've made and the strategic process they've gone through to achieve success. Then we identify and highlight the key brand lessons and marketing learnings which we believe will be applicable to businesses anywhere. Before asking ourselves and you the really tough question, so what are we now going to do differently? In today's episode, we're talking grocery boxes, the power of a local WhatsApp group and a mate with a van, and the importance of a collective mindset in these challenging times for brands as we're joined by Joe Fowler, founder of Smith & Brock. This is a story of tenacity and reinvention of two brothers, Nick and Joe, and their extraordinary fruit and vegetable business. Inspired by their father and their memories of helping out on his market stall as kids, taking inspiration from their wives' maiden names and a passionate belief in the importance of quality to create their brand. Welcome to StratHack. We're so pleased to have Joe Fowler, co-founder of the amazing Smith & Brock with us today. Now, Smith & Brock is probably a brand that you haven't heard of yet, Uh, but Sarah and I are huge fans of theirs and have referenced them a lot recently with work that we've been doing for clients. Um, And we think we've got a story for you today about a business uh, destroyed and a business reborn. Um, And we think that it's a story that's going to resonate with many of you and that the lessons and learnings will be universal. So welcome, Joe, your first podcast interview, I think. Indeed, the first one. Yeah, yeah, not done this before. So um, apologies if I mess anything up. But yeah, nice to talk to you. Ah, Welcome. So a little bit more about Smith & Brock. So started in 2016, founded by two brothers, Nick and Joe, who we've got with us today. Smith & Brock is, or perhaps was, we'll talk about that a little today, a premium fruit and veg wholesaler, selling to some of the best Michelin-starred restaurants and hotels in the UK. Business was booming, turnover was 15 million, an incredible amount for a small business from Camberwell in South London. Everything was going swimmingly until March 2020. Joe, can you take us back to March last year and I guess just tell us what happened? Yeah, uh, I can. Yeah, it was uh, horrendous. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we uh, our main business is Smith & Brock, which is a, um, a wholesale greengrocer, if you like. So we supply lots of hotels, lots of sort of yeah, high-end uh, restaurants, some Michelin star. Um, we do bars, we do, um, you know, a few clubs, catering outfits as well. So people who do outdoor catering, supply big, big events, we do that as well. So it was a real mixed bag of customers. I mean, funny enough, I was looking back at my um, um, you sort of flashback photos on your phone and me and my brother was actually in Berlin in a, a food festival in Berlin in February. Now, I can remember then, then that people, you know, the coronavirus kind of chat was going. and I don't remember saying, oh, should we go, should we not go? But it was kind of definitely there. Yeah, so we, we had this fantastic uh, trip out to Berlin come back from that and yeah pretty much obviously the the, the rumblings got worse and worse and uh, panic stations were upon us so I think the week before the, the lockdown was announced it was it was literally like a tap someone was just turning off our business day on day whether I guess the rumours were getting worse and, and, and restaurants 
stopped buying, people stopped going out, and obviously um, we had uh, we had we, we were stopped as we were, would be normally. You know, we held sort of three days worth of stock on 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 most lines in in the warehouse. Yeah, we had a warehouse full of stock and the sales were just dwindling by the day. And then obviously when the, the, the lockdown was announced by Boris, it was, you know, light, literally lights off. There was just nothing coming in. Um, so obviously we panicked. We didn't know, didn't know kind of what to do for the best, really. We, we only got 90-odd staff there all kind of looking at me and my brother saying, what are we going to do? And, I mean, lucky enough, we started a kind of a bit of an idea one day I was in the warehouse and sort of looking around about doing afternoons. And generally our, our working hours are all very busy in um, sort of evening through to early morning. Most of our vans are out by sort of six o'clock in the morning. They're all out on their first deliveries. We have a little influx of second deliveries, um, which generally go out between kind of 10 a.m. to midday latest, really. So we've got this kind of period of the day between sort of lunchtime to kind of three in the afternoon the pick team start at four in the afternoon for the next day so we had this kind of twilight sort of three hours and I was in the warehouse the warehouse is not not staffed at that time obviously the produce is there we've got sort of 20 odd vans parts in our forecourt and me and my brother kind of said like you know we've got the vans we've got the warehouse we, we, we can get the staff let's have a go at some sort of retail offer and we didn't really know what 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 where and when you know how to kind of offer it but we could just see that we had a bit of potential, a bit of sort of spare time. You know, I guess in anyone's business, the aim is, if you can, is to trade 24 hours a day, right? So but that's essentially what we were trying to do. So we started speaking to a lady called Magda, who owns a company called KDB Growth. Back in, I think it was um, early part of January, we started talking to, to Magda, and we kind of long chats with her, told us, you know, explain what we did, what we've done, what we're doing, kind of what our ideas were. So, I mean, luckily enough, Magda was kind of behind the scenes from January to, to March, um, getting a bit of background information um, we wanted to offer to the, to the public. We didn't know how or what or, or kind of what would be best. Obviously, we had a fleet of trucks, so a home delivery aspect would be the key thing to do to, to utilise the fleet. So that that was our plan. So, I mean, we, we kind of had a bit of a plan before Horace's announcement, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like everything was there ready to go. So we, we got everyone together, our kind of senior staff, and we basically said, like, let's get some boxes together. So we got a guy called Christoph, who's uh, in our sales team. He came up with a few different boxes with different products in, ranging from kind of fruit and veg to veg and fruit and then a kind of dairy box. And we said, yeah, fine, let's, let's, let's give that a go. Christoph lives in sort of Dulwich Way. Um, he's got a WhatsApp group on his road, so he sent it to his friends on his WhatsApp group, and you know they sent it to their friends and their friends. And it just went on and on and on. Obviously, we was posting as much as we can on social media and any avenue of you know drumming up some trade with really. And uh, it just literally, we went from the last day before the lockdown. I mean, we was probably running at sort of ten percent of our turnover, which you know is a for any business is a end of the world kind of thing. Um, so we went from that to, to being really busy with his boxes, where we had nothing in place really. It was a case of customer would ring the office, say what box they wanted. We'd call them back, we'd take payment. So we had, you know, the phone line in the main office was just off the clock. It was, which was great, but it was just so messy. You know, we had to take an order, um, call back for payment. We only had a couple of people in the office who knew how to use the, the card machine because in general we don't really take much, you know, 
cash, everything we do is, is account, you know, so we don't really have much need for a carbon machine. Um, it was only Shannon in the county who could use it, so we was basically taking an order, emailing Shannon. Shannon was calling them to pay. It was just just a nightmare. So, you know, within time, we got the website set up and we added Shopify to it, and it all became very easy to get on the website and do it. But it was, you know, the first week was just bonkers. It was, it was crazy. Why do you think that was? Like, you mentioned, like, the local WhatsApp groups and all of that that just sort of sprung up, felt like almost overnight. Do you think it was that? Do you think it was that local kind of have-a-go spirit? Do you think it was more the fact that you just couldn't get a supermarket delivery slot? Do you think, why do you think it took off so quickly the way it did? I think it's a mix of everything, really. Um, I don't think you could kind of single out um, any of those, to be honest. I, I think... There was a lot of scare, you know, the scare factor was certainly there in that first lockdown. You know, people didn't leave their house because they, you know, we all thought the worst. We'd get kind of eyes and, you know, die if you go to the shops. So I think there was a lot of panic. I mean, we, we was literally, um, our drivers would be driving down the road and people would be flagging them down saying, like, give me a box. I'll give you 50 quid for a box. You know, it just wasn't normal. You know, that was just not, not, um, yeah. not normal behaviour, you know. Um, and we, we could tell from the kind of the second and the third lockdowns that, that, that fear factor had gone, I think. I think that's why our sales kind of um, quieted down because I think people was kind of willing to then go to the supermarkets and, and queue up and it put, everything probably felt a bit safer. Um, but I think that first lockdown, yeah, I think it was a mix of people being very scared to go out um, or, or take deliveries in from people they didn't know. I think the, the, the produce just wasn't there. There was that kind of probably a two-week sweet spot for people like us where the supermarkets just can't react as quick as we could. Um, they're on like a two-week cycle stock-wise. So, you know, if we went out of potatoes today, I can go and get potatoes tomorrow. It's not it's not a problem. Whereas with the supermarket, it's not as easy as that, especially if they've got um, a lot of their purchasing is done. It's all pre-planned, obviously. So if they go over their quota, it's quite hard for them to get more in. And then, if, you know, and then it takes an awful long time for them to kind of get back to the correct stock level. So I think it was a mix of everything. I think there was a, um, a good element of local kind of camaraderie and let's help out the, the little guys while the supermarkets aren't essentially safe. So I think, I think it was a mix of everything. Yeah, it's interesting. So sort of full disclosure, I was on um, one of those WhatsApp groups That's right, back yeah, in April um, and somebody sent it to our street WhatsApp group and then I sent it on to our school WhatsApp group. And, yeah. and they, it, I think you're right, Jay, there was definitely a mixture of I mean, it was that moment, you know, that when you did kind of mask up, well, in fact, we didn't mask up actually thinking about, but when you went to the supermarkets, then the products weren't there. But equally, I think you're completely right. There was something about helping the little guy and the fact Mm. that you were a local, you know, brother team in South London doing something different. And actually it did feel like we were trying to do something really different. I guess that was a question for you, which was, I remember you... You once told me, and I guess I paraphrase a bit, but kind of anyone can bung fruit and veg into a box and sell it. But it struck me that you and your brother were trying to do something a bit different. Um, And I remember you telling me that you didn't want to just put Hovis in. You were thinking, really thinking differently about the products. I wonder if you could tell, tell us a bit more about what you decided to put into the box and why. Yeah, I mean... To be honest, when it first started, um, I think the demand for kind of hobbies was there because you couldn't get, you know, you couldn't go, no one was going to the supermarkets, no one was getting delivery. So I think people was, they would have bought anything, if I'm honest with you. 
you know, even in a wholesale business, we, we don't really want to, I don't really want to sell Hovis bread because there's loads of other people who can do that and they can do it cheaper and it's just not really our bag. But our business is all about offering the best for the best if we can. What we do in the wholesale business, we want to try and replicate to, to the people at home, you know, and um, we started looking at local suppliers. So we got the, the bread from Bread Bread in, in Brixton. Um, we've used them every day since then, you know, and we, we started to do the same thing with different cheeses and um, bits of charcuterie and stuff like that, which is lots of people have. I mean, I live, I live out in sort of sick up in um, just outside of South London and um, there's loads of little shops selling fruit and veg, but they're not doing it very well. But there's obviously a demand for it. So people have just kind of pitched up at a, a vacant shop and, and, you know, gone to the market, bought a few bits and, and they're trying to sell it. That's not really what we want to do. We want to try and just continue that kind of premium brand and, and the product throughout, really. Do you think that's because of your your dad? Because he, he was a greengrocer, is that right, in, in, in Brixton Market? Yeah, so, yeah, dad was, um, yeah, funny enough, he was actually in Brixton Market on Friday and Saturday, literally where my dad used to work. We'd, we'd done a pop-up at um, the laundry in Brixton. Um, so it was quite weird to be, yeah. You know, Back in your roots, so say. you remember but, being a kid helping your dad in the market there? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So what? That's like sort of thirty years later. Then you're back doing a pop yeah, up with your own yeah. with your own company. Yeah, it's all kind of yeah. Like, yeah I, I was only a kid when dad was at Brixton, so I think it's more you know a couple of the buildings you kind of recognise. But um, yeah, my, my dad was um, he he was kind of very ahead of his game at his time. He used to, he was one of the first guys to go to Paris to run years and start bringing back his own product and his own wheels. He'd done the same with Milan. So I actually used to go to Milan myself and we'd, we'd do the buying there. We'd send a, one of our drivers would be out there, he'd meet us, we'd load it all back, uh, load the lorry up and then we'd send it all back to London and sell it on the wholesale market. So yeah, and, and Dad was quite um, pioneering, I guess. He was, you know, he started going to ranges and then chefs started asking him for, you know, not only fruit and veg, but charcuterie. So he was selling tons and tons of uh, foie gras a year, like thousands of tons of foie gras, uh, black leg chicken, um, you know, goose fat, lots of uh, French chocolate. I mean, this is back in the kind of, from this, this was in the 90s where not many people were doing that kind of thing, whereas now it's, you've got, you know, the classic and, there's lots of other people uh, very big in doing that, but back in back in that you know that time, it was quite a, a niche market, and, and Dad really, you know, he really jumped on that, and, and so he was he was kind of working with people like Michelle Rue at the Gavroche, but he wasn't just doing the you know the potatoes and the carrots. He was offering him some dry goods, you know, nice oils, vinegars, chocolates, charcuterie, basically anything anything that um, a good chef would need. But, um, Dad would always try and try and go and get it. And Joe, are you using the same kind of farmers and suppliers that your dad used, or are you using kind of new sets of people? And where 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 do you find where do you find the kind of the farms and the dairies to to partner with? We don't really know. We're not, we're not using the same as Dad used to. Um, in terms of suppliers, kind of uh, in Newcombe Garden Market, um, you know, I've, I've, people my dad used to use are still there now. Um, so we've got a lot of good relationships there. But in terms of kind of direct suppliers, we, we've really gone out and found our own our own kind of um, away with that, really. When we first started, it was just really key to me and my brother to kind of try and have a, a direct relationship with, you know, growers. So things like our strawberries, we, we, we drive down to Kent in, in season, obviously, um, a few, three or four times a week. 
and we collect the strawberries ourselves and we bring them back so we know what we're getting each day. We know the price. We know the quality is going to be good as well. And, you know, if that quality is not good, you've got that direct relationship with the grower where you can tell them that if they weren't good, look, next time can you pick them this size or, or this shape or et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, we've, we've, we've built um, yeah, a good nucleus of, uh, of suppliers. And then, obviously, you've got social media now. You've got, you know, the internet. I mean, when my dad started, obviously there was no internet. So going to try and find a, 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 a grower of tomatoes in the south of France you just unless you went there you weren't really going to find them you know so now we can we can use internet and social media is great because you know if you usually find someone selling a good product generally they're, they're on social some sort of social media platforms you can message in that way yeah so we've you know we've worked quite hard to do that as well which took a lot of time to to get to where we are with suppliers. Sounds like a big part of why this has been successful is because of almost all of that expertise and history and heritage has gone into the boxes. I mean, essentially what you've built is, is this important of, you know, importance of indies sticking together. You've essentially yeah. built this kind of collective of independents who all care just as much about the tomato that they give you to put in as the oil mm. guy cares about the oil that goes in. What's also interesting is what you've done with how you've kind of put the boxes together. Mm. So one of the things that we always cite as a big kind of, I guess, a reason for some of this success is actually you make it super easy. I'm thinking particularly of the occasion-based boxes. Yeah. So I don't have to think about what Sunday brunch is going to look like because you've done all the hard work for me. You've thought about all of the sourcing. I know all of it's going to be brilliant mm. and it's all going to be right and it's all going to be top-notch and it's going to taste amazing. But what you've done is you've just made it super easy for me to go Sunday brunch buy i guess could you just talk us through how you kind of got to that insight into put those kind of occasion-based boxes together i guess yeah we've got a lot of people here you know foodies and and obviously the with the restaurants being closed we had to kind of to kind of think outside the box to try and be a bit different to other people so you know in the summer i think it probably started with a barbecue box i think if i'm not wrong um it was just quite a simple we, we supply a couple of butchers ourselves, so we, we obviously, like, again, like we're trying to help each other out. We was we go to them and say, you know, what's what's good for a um, what's what's good for a barbecue box? What do you recommend? You know, give us burgers or you know, uh, chicken or whatever it might be, and we just try and mix mix a box together that's gonna, yeah, like you say, like you know, you like if you're gonna do a barbecue box, essentially you want to open that box, you want to have your your protein in there, your salad, your tomatoes, you know stuff to grill on the on the barbecue courgettes or sweet corn or whatever it might be we've even looked at you know we we, we deal with a company i've got some samples then actually called trekkelmans who, who do great sauces so if we're doing a roast box they, they do a lovely mustard and for what we do now if you're going to buy a roast box we've got to supply you with pretty much everything other than your kind of standard store sort of products that most people have but you know so if we're, we're doing beef we want to have the mustard soup we want to have the mashed potatoes obviously the, the condiments of the you know the nice purple broccoli or whatever it might be to go with it it's just trying to um stop people from having to go anywhere else is the, is the main goal and you know you've got to be careful with it because we don't want to don't want to be peddling kind of cheap flour and stuff like that because that's not really what we're about but if you're you know if you're buying into our boxes we've got to try and supply everything pretty much to make that box you know do, do what exactly what it needs to do then i think my uh i think my stomach just started rumbling I think I was yeah, like, literally, I was yeah. like, oh my God, the, the, the microphone's going to pick up my stomach rumbling. Yeah. 
we were saying that the other day, yeah, it'd be very nice to uh, yeah, sit in the garden with a, a, a burger and a beer. It'd be great. Oh. Joe, one of the things, the many things that Sarah and I love about Smith & Brock is just the marketing is incredible. I mean, genuinely, it looks so professional. So you did you, you left school at 16, didn't go to university, you haven't got an MBA, you haven't studied no, marketing? No. University of Life is what my dad used to tell me. Yeah, no, I left school at 16. School wasn't really for me. Sort of in my later years of school, I, you know, I was in sixth form and I just found that you were sitting around not doing a lot and I wanted to go on some money was the long and short of it. Obviously, dad had his business. Me and my brother had always been around uh, dad's businesses from you know, being very small um, to, to kind of being sort of teenagers going in and helping out, whether it be delivering with a, with a driver or, you know, just, just general stuff in the warehouse. So I've always been around dad and obviously seen dad do quite well for himself. And I, you know, I, I just found at school I was kind of sat around doing a lot. And I, I knew what I wanted to do. I, I didn't want to go to university. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. But um, yes, I started working from the dad when I was 16. So, so, so I guess my question is, have you spent a fortune on ad agencies and logo design? Because you're the stuff, and, and, and for anybody listening, you know, if you Google Smith & Brock or Knock Knock by Smith & Brock, you know, you'll see for yourself that the, the logo looks beautiful, the design, the aesthetic, it's really um, well thought through and professional. So I guess, you know, you must have spent a lot of money employing lots of agencies to do this for you. I mean, when we set up just, you know, Smith & Brock in 2016, obviously we wanted to, we were saying to look really classy and, and kind of individual, a bit kind of old school, sort of back to our roots, I guess. So Dad had a, a big, a lot, a lot of people who do what we do have these kind of old, olden day barrows. My dad actually used to pull out a brick to the market when he was 16, 17. So we had one of these kicking around and, and the idea was when you think of greengrocers, you obviously think of some sort of wooden barrow. That's kind of, you know, the old school picture in your mind, I guess. So so we had this um, barrow idea and we wanted to kind of, in, you know, include that in, in our business. We thought it would be quite a good logo with, with that on it. So yeah, so that, the, we had the barrow and fun enough, my brother, we, was, we didn't want to call our business, you know, Joe and Nick's fruit and veg because that's not really... I don't think that would have got us very far, to be honest. So we wanted to call it something a bit quirky and different. And um, we was employed by someone else. So, so um, we sold our dad's business to a big nationwide business. So Nick and I was working there. We give our notice in. And we didn't really know what we, was gonna, what we wanted to do. I, I just kind of wanted to do something else. So where we was kind of doing it quite secretly um, towards the end of it, we were trying to think of a name. And my brother just rang me one day in the car and said, what do you think of Smith and Brock? So Smith is my brother's wife's maiden name and Brock is my wife's maiden name. So it just kind of paired really well. It went, when you sort of rode it out, it kind of went with the load, with the, the barrow. And um, yeah, we, we used a girl called Rebecca. So I, I rang an ad agency for um, a quote on a website. I think they said it's like 40 grand. I was like, well, <laughs> I haven't got four grand, let alone 40. Um, so they give me another lady's number who works for them and does some part-time stuff and she just had a baby so she was on maternity leave and a lady called Rebecca just we had a meeting with her kind of brainstormed what, what, where we wanted to go with it and our kind of heritage and our roots and yeah and she she kind of put all the, a few different ideas together and, and, and we, we kind of all of us really I mean we all kind of picked it out together 
I love that, Joe. It's like, you know, it's it's Magda. It seems, seems, seems as there's a lot of women as well. You know, there is. There's an old series. Yeah, and working mums women, yeah. and Fair juggling careers. I'd like, which, you know, as yeah, no, uh, cool. two female founders juggling careers and motherhood, and, you know, we're like, right on. We, that's, it's yeah. great. No, I mean, all, all of our marketing team, are, they're all, all ladies, which is, and they're all kind of telling us to do this and do that. It's, it's great, yeah. Interesting hearing you talk about, I guess, the start yeah. of your brand. But actually, one thing that's, amazing is you know we talk a lot when we're working with clients about you know everything's advertising everything communicates you've got to think about your tone of voice Mm. absolutely every touch point and you guys seem to just do that really instinctively like I'm thinking about it's not just a brown cardboard delivery box it's absolutely who you are it says something that the recognition of the vans in the street that people at a local level love and things like particularly the letters inside the boxes i just wondered um can you just tell us a little bit more about the letters and the story and why they're they're so brilliant and they're so special and they're so important and just where that the instinct to do that came from and kind of yeah how how the letters came about i guess um the letters i mean that's my kind of my brother's um my brother's idea pretty much um along with uh, the guys from kdv we we but we basically decided that people are sat at home, they're bored out of their minds. So if they're going to order something, uh, you know, one of our boxes, but then, you know, let's tell them a bit more about it. You know, it's not normal times where you just open a box and you stick it in the fridge or someone gives you a bit of paper, you're more you're more inclined to, to read it because you haven't got a great, you know, most people haven't got a great deal of other things to do. So, you know, we just kind of planned that we'd give people a bit of background to where the stuff come from. So we was collecting stuff from Kent and, you know, you can, literally tell that person who's eating your strawberry the, the name of the grower. It's, you know, it's great. And and then obviously as you go into other seasons, we do the same thing with the, the stuff we import from France. A lot of that's got a background to it as well. So what our, um, our kind of spinach and our um, tomatoes, all that kind of stuff is coming from France. And we get it from um, a great grower down there. So we, you know, we try and shout about, where stuff comes from because I think it's um, it's paramount now that people want to know what they're eating and wh- where it's come from whereas years ago I don't think there wasn't that interest and in there is now yes yeah, so we, we just 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 try to give people a bit more information really and um, we try and tell people obviously you know how to store stuff as well and don't put you know you see salad leaves in the back of the fridge because they probably get frozen so just just trying to be you know, a bit more care, I guess, is the long and short of it, and, and just trying to um, pass a bit of our knowledge on, I suppose. Uh, we'll put a link to one of the letters in the oh, description yeah. for this episode so that people can see um, what Amelia and I are waxing lyrical about. Yeah. They no, are, absolutely. They are one, one of the things that I, that I love that was a real surprise was um, and maybe about six months ago or so when I was, um, you know, taking things out of the box, and then at the bottom was a beautiful printed fact. I think it was about pineapples. And yeah. I, I think the fact was that in the, the 18th century that very rich people used to hire pineapples just That's to walk right. about with them at parties. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm like, I love that. I love that. Yeah. And it's like, again, the idea that there's this kind of empty space at the bottom of a cardboard box, mm. but you use it. And that tells me, you know, the kind of quirky fact about fruit and ve- that tells you so much about the brand. And I guess when, when, I, when I was telling this to Sarah, I think I took a picture of, of it and, you know, messaged her with it you did <laughs> and, and 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 you know both of us you know mm-hmm. there are so many people out there with you know a million sort of marketing degrees who would kind of miss an opportunity mm. like that to think about that's a touch point 
Uh, mm. And I guess that's what we find so refreshing. And I think Sarah had said this before. It's almost instinctive or kind of sort of common sense branding and marketing. Uh, and I just, you know, the, the boxes as a point of of advertising, I think is fascinating. Did you have a chat about that? Or like who comes up with what you're going to do to the boxes? I think, the, the, I mean, the idea of the boxes was that, um, I, got, I suppose it comes goes back to kind of anyone can put a bit of food vegetable in a box and sell it. So generally, if you're going to try and do it on the cheap and without much thought, you can just, you can go and buy a pallet of cardboard boxes, plastic boxes, whatever you want, and just, just throw the stuff in there. But if you've got a brown box, you know, stick your name on it because one, your customer's going to see it and potentially lots of other people are going to see it because it's going to get left outside or it's going to get recycled. From a wholesale point of view and from the, the retail kind of aspect, if someone takes our box and someone else sees it, then, you know, that's hopefully, potentially, it's another sale. And obviously, when um, we do different size boxes, we do a kind of small box, which I think we put the uh, the berries in, which is just a, it's pretty like a ruler length kind of size box. And you go up to a bigger box, which is double the size of that, with a lid. And then there's a big box with another lid. So it's a lot of box, you know. So we, we would just look at it and said, like, don't just want a plain box. One of the people, I forget it was now, one of the guys from KDV had said that they bought something. I think someone left a bit of card in the box. And I bought something online. I bought a um, like a little handmade leather wallet. Um, it wasn't expensive, it was, but it was like a, from a local person. And they just put a little, so it was come in a nice cardboard box, lifted the cardboard box up nicely with tissue paper. And then there was just a card saying, hi, Joe, um, really appreciate your support. Thanks for everything, you know. Um, please share on Instagram or it was. And I just thought that's great, you know, that they've gone to the trouble. Mate, it's, it's very small, but it made me feel that's great. Man. Thanks for that. That personal touch was definitely there. So I guess we just wanted to try and replicate that and, you know, just, just having a bit of a quirky fact about fruit and veg. I mean, what else can we write, write in there other than fruit and veg? In there? So it was just, yeah, we, we got a few ideas between sort of the to the team here, what would you put in there? And yeah, we've 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 um we've passed it on to our packaging people and they can't design it. Oh, it's great. It's great. And then Joe, so super quickly, the way that you think about your brand is that you've got Smith and Brock, which is the kind of the main brand, that's the wholesale, and then knock knock by Smith and Brock is your retail, your direct consumer. Is yeah. that right? You've kind of deliberately put a bit of a yeah. marker between the two. Yeah. We, we wanted to obviously keep the two separate because they, they do different things. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we were told by the, the, the our marketing guys at KDV that we should have two separate brands. I mean, to be honest, my brother and I wanted to keep everything at Smith & Brock. We, we like the brand, we like how it looks, but I think it gets a bit confusing. You know, you, you, you've got some people looking at Smith & Brock and then you've got other people looking at Knock Knock and no one really knows which one's which. So we always try and... You know, anything wholesale with Smith and Block, anything retail will be will be not not by Smith and Block. So we're even looking at um, my brother and I are looking at shops to open to have, have a shop within you know, the next couple of. Well, we wanted to have a shop by now, but it's taking a lot longer to um, to, to to kind of find one and, and, and agree on terms and stuff. But um, even that, we we decided that that will be called not not by Smith and Block, not Smith and Block. So we we always keep the retail separate. I guess just picking up on that when. So it's interesting to hear you start talking about this, not just in kind of lockdown restriction context. So when we're all, let's all go to the happy place. <laughs> everything's, you know, everything's kind of back to normal. Yeah. She says in inverted commas, whatever that's going to mean in the future. Yeah. 
So you mentioned earlier on in our conversation about, you know, there was that massive initial sort of sales spike and then things kind of not dropped, but leveled out because people, it started to become part of maybe a suite of sort of behaviours and ways that people were kind of shopping. And I guess it'd just be really interesting to see kind of, do you think it's viable to kind of, you know, really start to develop not not kind of going forward. So you mentioned the shops, but just what do you think in terms of the delivery brand? How's that going to evolve? Why? Do you, how do? You, how are you going to keep that different to others? As other people, to be honest, are kind of coming in your slipstream for a behaviour that you've built. So just yeah, what's next, and how how do you see that playing out? I guess we, we've. I mean, in or out of the lockdown, you know, when, when restaurants have been open and shut, we, we've always carried on with not not prescription block. Quite a few people who do what we do from a whole aspect only really done the, the the retail stuff when restaurants were shut. Whereas we decided, look, you know, we've we've spent quite a lot of money um, on the brand and you know, like the boxes and that kind of thing already. So we, we'd invested a lot of you know time as well. So we certainly didn't want to just knock it on the head and go, oh, retail uh, wholesale's back. Let's leave retail alone now because one, uh, you know, we we was fairly confident that there was going to be other lockdown, so it'd be madness to kind of shoot yourself in the foot and and stop the retail so we're probably investing more now than we ever have done in knock knock by smith and brock and um we we, we plan to keep it going and we've got no plans to, to, to ever stop really um we'd like to see ourselves in a, in a shop or a, a few different shops if i'm honest if i could have a yeah a little nucleus of kind of six or seven shops scattered around south london would be the would be the kind of um, the idea because I, I think we've got we, we buy quite well, um, we purchase well, we've got good good connections. We're building on connections with not only food and veg now, but other lines as well, so dairy, charcuterie, dry goods, and, and meat. So you know, I think we've got um, a lot to offer still. You know? It's not just um, home delivery; it can be other things as well. Do you think that'll be the kind of strategy in the near future at least that it'll be about deepening your sort of presence within London or do you ever see a time where some of that scale might come from delivery across the rest of the country for example where do you think that's going to come kind of initially we have done a few a few generally we've not really used couriers and um, I know other people have done but we've always wanted to be kind of um, answerable for what we're delivering so you know we, we Apart from when times are crazy, we had to pull in a few friends to kind of deliver. But generally, well, you know, 99% of the time, all our boxes are delivered by our drivers who have worked for us for you know a fair amount of time. So when you start using you know the likes of BBD and, and other people like that, they're throwing your boxes around. You kind of it's a bit of a sweet spot where yeah, you obviously we want to sell you know you want to sell to the whole world if you could, but you're going to tarnish your brand at some point because, you know, someone's going to get squashed, someone's going to get trodden on or, or you know, or, or damaged in some way. So it's, uh, it's something we'd love to do. I you know, I'd love to, if there was a market for us to deliver up in, you know, Glasgow or wherever it might be, then, then great. But it's just getting it there and and maintaining the standard is, is a bit of a worry for me and brother. So we've tried to keep it to London. And we do, obviously, we we still doing quite a bit of wholesale work we do go outside of london so it's not just london but i think yeah london is kind of where we we want to kind of attack as much as possible i guess i've spoken to a friend of mine 
says, you know, we could do a shop, you know, a knock knock shop around where I live. And so you, don't, you, know, you don't know what the future's going to hold. But, you know, London is, for me, it's what London is kind of where it's at. And, and I think there's plenty of potential there as it is. Well, certainly from our perspective, the thing that you need to have in place are kind of two things. One is the, the product and the quality. And the other is is the brand, and that gives you the platform. And um, you definitely, in the space of a year, I mean, my goodness, you're, you're right. You know, you think back to Berlin in February 2020 and yeah. where you are now. I mean, who'd have, yeah, yeah. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? Yeah. Listen, we're, we're, we're coming up to the end of our time. Um, so I just wanted to do a huge thank you from, um, from Sarah and myself, um, because we know quite how busy you are. Um, and just really thank you for sharing um, the story. And we are kind of fascinated and delighted to to kind of watch where the knock knock the knock knock by Smith and Brock story goes next because we know that it's going to take you to some amazing places so thank you thank you again Joe you're welcome that's no, lovely to talk to you a pleasure so Amelia what were your key takeouts of that conversation Oh, I loved talking to Joe. I just I think he's so <laughs> brilliant. I mean, God, there were so many things. Um, I don't know. Let me pick three. If it's yeah, if it was good enough for Steve Jobs, it'll be good enough for me. Okay, <laughs> three key takeouts. Um, I loved the fact that uh, Joe and his team were such sort of intuitive and instinctive marketeers, kind of gut feel branding. Mm. Um, I think it um, was a real lesson in putting yourself in the consumer's shoes and really thinking about what matters to them at the, at that moment. So I guess a good example would be when he talked about the beautiful letters that go into the box and his insight was, well, you know, we're all in lockdown. We're all really bored. We need something interesting to read. And I'm like, <laughs> actually, you're right. You know, so, so really thinking, putting yourself in the customer's shoes. So I thought that was fantastic so everything communicates yeah I really took out that they were very clear about their point of difference so again you know anyone can put some fruit and veg and a hovis bread into a box and sell it but actually what makes our products different so really understanding your clear point of difference I thought was great I think what I took out of that is they changed their products so quickly almost sounds like it's wrong but you know they started out with the basics and then they moved to the saturday brunch boxes then they mm. partnered with local independent butchers then they partnered with restaurants there's a constant stream of new which i think allows them to keep fresh and meaningful in people's minds really so those i guess those would be my key takeouts i think the the fact that there was the commitment to the detail but also the level of consistency. The consistency was the brand, basically. The consistency was the Smith & Brock wrapper around everything, which enabled them then to go, do you know what? We're going to do seasonal. We're going to do Mother's Day. We're going to do this event. We're going to do Sunday brunch and be flexible within it and to keep keep that freshness and keep that change. But the level of consistency that they had as the wrapper around it was was really interesting. And like you say, to do that quite instinctively, to do that without a focus group and three months of meetings and who'll write the letter and should we get, you know, commission somebody to write the letter and should it be this? Should we crowdsource no, the letter? No, they just got on and did it. Just yeah. wrote the bloody letter and it was brilliant. 
again, coming from that place of, well, would never have used the phrase like, oh, we need to surprise and delight the customer. But obviously that's what happened when you got this amazing letter coming out of a box full of joy. I just, yeah, like you say, I also really locked into that instinct and the fact that that comes from no excuses for the phrase, like knowing your onions. They just know what they do really, really well. I mean, that's where the phrase comes from. You know, they, they know what they do really, really well. And so playing into that, the fact that you would you would eat anything that came in that box because of where it came from. And you would trust that they had curated or chosen or 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 done any of those things. And it's actually something previously we would have taken for granted or just something so fundamental about the fact that it's it, it it's food and it's something that you then make a meal out of no i think that's right i mean i but it's not basic no and i think that it's not basic you know the everyone's talking about flywheels aren't they at the moment you know yes. funnel is dead and it's all about flywheels but you know if you think about that framework of attract engage delight yeah 100%. i think what they've done brilliantly is the delight actually um and they've really it's delightful. The, the experience is full of delight. It's delightful from, you know, the touches of um, the the little the copy at the bottom of the, the 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 boxes. The I think last week they added in lots of fresh wild garlic that they'd picked up when they went down to collect, you know, some produce, fresh produce from Kent, and you know, all those kind of surprise and delight. You you open the box. And you're you're kind of amazed, and that sense of delight and wonder feels like it is something that's really applicable, you know, across the board. Whether you're talking to fashion companies, whether you're talking to technology companies, but that things that make you smile. My goodness, God, we all need we all need some something that 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 makes you feel good, you know, that that actually delights and engages. Um, and they've done that brilliantly. Yeah, they've done it without without ever knowing uh, or without ever using the words funnels or (laughs) flywheels yeah exactly they've just done it because it's what makes sense and it's what they know and what they love and I guess just going back to that instinct point actually some of that sort of speed of decision making yes yes and I guess that maybe that's a covid I don't know if that's a covid thing or just you just have to make a decision you just yeah you have to make a decision and it's interesting how how that's now going to play out as they have to make kind of more decisions going forward and there's you know and it's I guess if we take sort of the Smith and Brock story as a proxy for loads of other similar stories small yes, absolutely. small around, but perfectly around, for, around, around the, the world. UK absolutely. Yeah, around the UK around the world and actually how do some of those bigger themes about like you say whether it's the collective of kind of independence whether it's the you could mobilize people around solutions like this because of the situation that everyone else was in or what does you know joe sort of pulled on it towards the end of the conversation just there about what does what does a physical kind of retail space mean going forward how are all of these things sort of going to play and how you can take the magic really of all of that everything communicates it's all in the detail surprise and delight of brand and potentially scale it or not scale it at all. Keep doing the thing that you're doing and doing it brilliantly and kind of connect up. And I think there's going to be some, we've locked in on this example because it's familiar to us because of where we are in the world. But there will be many other 
similar kind of stories and people who have, you know, pivoted, made those decisions, done what they needed to do to survive as well. Let's be honest. This wasn't a kind of, this was a, we have to do something or we're not going to get oh, we've through got, it. we don't have a business, yeah. Or we don't have a business or, you know, we've got a warehouse full of whatever and we need yes, to kind rotting of... Fruit of rotting fruit. Rotting fruit. Yes. And we, you know, no, you know yes. this, none of this was kind of... A know, choice at the beginning. Yeah, a no. choice at the beginning and then has sort of been leaned into. And I just, that whole... Well, that's a pivot and... Yeah. Perm- what what, what yeah, out pivot of the pivot perm- becomes permanent? Yeah. yeah. No, that's a very good... That is a very good question. I think, again, you, you're right. He, he did touch on that on the end, you know, because restaurants will reopen... Yeah. And it, it is interesting, which is, you know, how much of that pivot do they want to keep the DTC direct consumer? Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it definitely sounded like it was something that gave them a huge amount of pleasure, actually. Yeah. And, you know, think about the sort of wholesale side. Super profitable. It's much smaller number of kind of customers and, you know, not necessarily, you're kind of, you 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 know, you're selling to a restaurant, for example, to then use your ingredients to kind of put to customers. The whole, the directness yes. <laughs> of direct-to-consumer and being able to go, I've chosen this. This is your Sunday brunch and I've put it all together and it goes into your home. And you're right, it did. It does sound like that gives them a lot more. You've got an immediate feedback loop. Yes, you've got, yes absolutely. You, you, you've got direct kind of connection with customers and you're also giving people you're spreading your sort of passion and joy to them and encouraging people to kind of cook and be together and all of that other lovely stuff that sort of sits around it. And maybe it's about, you know, for them and for a lot of these other businesses and brands that have kind of come up and sort of crossed over into the consumer space through this period. Interesting to see how you, how the two, how the two can coexist. And then I guess sort of rolling that forward, then thinking about, how you play in a space where people know you from one sort of need state and one context and how you play when things get back to quote unquote normal, normal. quote unquote yeah exactly in massive bunny ear inverted commas so i mean that that is interesting i mean i guess the other thing that it's kind of making me think of is you know if we were going in and working with joe and his team mm. what would we recommend to him and certainly it strikes me that there is amazing potential like i could see smith and brock kind of franchising yeah that brand yeah that actually you know what they're never going to do is you know if they were sending smith and brock boxes to i don't know thinking you know peak customers in manchester it wouldn't be strawberries from kent it would be local to manchester you know the yeah the, yeah it'd be seasonal the proposition, local. But yeah absolutely yeah. but but actually you know there could be huge potential in franchising out that model if they're if they can build a brand that's strong enough and a community around it and I and I guess when when I say community I'm thinking of the people who get the boxes but I also think about the producers and the farms and the dairies uh and the the bakers and the butchers that they're connecting in with you know that can kind of pod out and franchise you know that 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 feels feels like that could have real potential there's so much in the brand already. Like you say, they've they've got the clear principles. They've got a really clear proposition. They've got that kind of centre of gravity around collectives of independence and it's about seasonality and locality. And a story. And, and a know, story and all of I mean, that I think stuff. What, yeah, I, mean, I, think, I do think actually 
again, you know, it's kind of kind of interesting game to play, you know, if if they were actually our client. <laughs> the story of them and their dad and helping their, you know, the 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 market traders and being kids with their dad in Brixton yeah. on a Saturday morning. You know, there's 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 actually, I think there's even more that they could pull on, I think, with their story of how they started. Yeah, and translating that to making it feel universal. Yes, I think that's so right. So making that's that story, right. yeah, making that story and making the brand feel bigger than London or bigger than kind of bigger than a kind of geographical context, making it think. And the franchising thing's interesting because, you know, you've got the, just thinking of us, you know, all kind of coming out of, hopefully, touch all the wood, um, this situation and into whatever new looks like. You will have all of these sort of small pockets and local people but but you need the strength in numbers to be able to scale and not everyone can do it the way that they've done it you could kind of see the story also being about them being pioneers you know them being kind of leaders in this area and them kind of something to kind of get behind from a from a brand story yeah. and kind of yes. franchising yes. like what, why yes. why this one why would you sign up and not do this on your own other than the obvious kind of commercial benefits of kind of um economy of scale but actually there's not the economy of scale in terms of the product because you'd have to stick to their kind of core principles so it would have to be about brand and that's a yeah it that's is a interesting. super interesting it, i remember you you bring telling me about a, the brand uh bother oh um, yes which is i think they they do, again it's a delivery dtc um but their positioning is all around the kind of boring basics yeah the stuff that you don't want to think about which I think Sarah, you and I sort of chatted was was really interesting. But it strikes me that you have to be just so clear about where you fit and what you offer. Yeah. Because I think it is that classic: once you extend and spread too thin, you end up not meaning anything to anyone. And I suppose you know, is it better to mean? I mean, that's you know, the classic marketing: less yeah. customers, but spending more, or more customers, but spending spending less. Yeah, and where you fit in all of that other stuff? There's the one of my other faves, the the Brew & Co, the tea company. You do based love that. Yeah, yes. I do. I do love it. That's because I'm from the north and my, we have blood, my blood is... We have to get them onto a podcast one day. I know. Yeah, my blood is 30% tea at all times. But thinking about that, how you can kind of... You know, they started D2C and do one thing and do it incredibly well and they know tea. And they have a lot of other sort of similar touches, actually, in terms of how everything communicates and there's community and you can kind of pay it forward and you know the letters that you get you know all of their copywriting is brilliant but actually how then from that d2c base they're kind of coming back in so you can now buy their tea in a waitrose you can buy it direct on amazon now you can in starting to think about how actually we might end up with just different sorts of hybrid models around some of this stuff that it's you know, you could launch products, you can launch ranges, you can launch things. Yeah, no, that's, once you've kind of yes. come from this, come from this space, and actually, if you've got the strength in the brand, I would, I still order direct from them because I love, I buy it in bulk. But equally, if I saw it on a shelf in Waitrose, I would pick some up. I mean, you, so you're just sort of thinking about how a lot of kind of coming from this space and coming out of this time that there's an opportunity to not sort of stay in your lane or not just go back to kind of the way things were, were before. Because to use your, you know, the bother example, we have started to think about things differently. It's not just about, you know, it's not about big shop and top up. It's not just about 
different things. You know, we have sort of started to think about how we consume differently and where we get things from. And no, absolutely. And I'd maybe like there to is think a that lesson, it will change. Yeah. 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 Maybe there is a lesson, less but better. Yeah. You know, maybe that's taught us something. Yeah. Um, over the course of the last 12 months, we're making more conscious decisions with our money. Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much of this consumer behavior stays in. So, you know, even if you think about, you know, all of us cooking, we're not going out. So all the all the meals are by, you know, they have to be home cooked. And, you know, is that going to be a fundamental shift? Are we going to get closer to produce again? And, you know, that, that'll be interesting to see when society loosens up, how much of this is permanent and how much isn't. Yeah. And on the flip side of time to cook, for example, is also what happens when you put the other stuff back in. So if I was commuting every day, I naturally wouldn't have the time. It wouldn't be a choice because I would have to think about things differently. I wouldn't be, it's it's the patterns of behaviour, but also it's the things we choose to do, but also the sort of norms that are going to be pushed back onto us and how how some of that sits is going to be super interesting. Yes, it's funny. I did a, an, a, an interview, uh, I was talking to somebody this morning who said that, um, you know, she's had more dinners with her husband and uh, as a family in the last year than, than she has for 25 years. <laughs> um, you know, he's a corporate lawyer. But but it was, to your point, she was like, yeah, he doesn't want just, to go back to that. He never wants to go back to that. Yeah, because you just, it, it's the, you know, it's like, where's the, where's the middle bit? It's pendulums, isn't it? The pendulum has obviously swung far too far the other way. Yeah. Where's it going to sort of stop on the way back? So killer question, Sarah. Ooh, um, killer question. All the conversations that we've been having around Smith and Brock and the quality and the excellence, everything communicates, um, the way they've built a business, I mean, really from the ground up. Thinking about um, if you were trying to take out a real key lesson that other businesses could use. What what would you what would it be? So I think um, you sort of touched on it there actually a little bit is around the ground up stuff. So I think all too often when we start to think about you know we need to build a community, we need to build a base, we need to you know build 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 get people on board, awareness, groundswell, etc. We think about that in terms of sort of quantity, not quality. And I sort of take that and I also take the backdrop of just how much the last 12 months have taught us about grassroots movements full stop and actually how it can be, you know, personalization isn't about the ad that you get served. It can be about a one-to-one conversation and it can be around mobilizing entire communities and and, and on much kind of relating to much sort of more serious things than fruit and veg. However, I do think that grassroots taking that forward and taking that with us and not reverting back to eyeballs and things that kind of come at us passively that whole thing of the power of local and community and you know start with the whatsapp group get your mate that's got a van build it there's such strength and power in so many entrepreneurial driven stories that kind of start with that and i think that we kind of sometimes as marketeers we look past that and we look for new and shiny and you know back to the basics yeah just go back to basics you don't need to kind of tiktok's brilliant for a lot of things but there are other ways to be able to kind of to be able to build some of this stuff i I mean i think my key takeout 
of the Smith and Brock story. So I echo completely what you said. I, I guess a different one would be, I think that partnering isn't a sign of weakness. Partnering is a sign of strength. Um, and I think the partnerships and the relationships that they built has only strengthened their own brand and will only do will only do that sort of more so in the future. Um, so I think that sense of who can you look to connect with who share your values and share your philosophy. And actually that sense, that mutuality, I think is something that's really important to brands and businesses and will only will only get more important. Agreed. So I think we're done. So a huge thanks to 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 Joe, um, wonderful founder of Smith and Brock. You can go and have a look at them online if you live um, in the UK. Uh, they deliver within the M25, but it's worth having a look at their website um, and also having a look at their Instagram as well. And as Sarah's always said, you know, there will be many Smith and Brock equivalents um, outside of London, outside of the UK. Um, but we think the lessons and learnings are really applicable and that they are real, real case study company. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to StratHack with me, Sarah Holland. And me, Amelia Tarode, founders of the Fawnbreak Collective. To find out more, visit wearefawnbreak.com. And for more information about today's guest, everything we've discussed and how to get in touch with us about this podcast, please check out the notes that accompany this episode. <laughs>